All right, well, um, we are in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, uh, we started talking through last week some of these um, challenges that Paul gives or these descriptors of the kind of change that happens when we submit to following Jesus. And what happens ultimately is that there is a, a transformation that's supposed to happen. There's a way that we're supposed to look as followers of Jesus. There is a, uh, a path of transformation that if we're following the Spirit, it's going to look like this when it comes to certain areas of our life. And Paul names a lot of those things. We're going to look this way as we submit ourselves to the renewal of our minds, being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And what starts to happen is this theme that's throughout the New Testament that Christians form a distinct community on earth. We look different. We live counterculturally. We're approaching things differently than the world approaches them. When the world would react one way, Christians are reacting a different way. And that picture starts to form for the world a, oh, so being a follower of Jesus does change the way that you live. It does affect your decisions. It does alter you as a person. But more importantly, you're bringing this representation of who God is into the world. And they're getting a chance to see God's response to a circumstance, God's reaction to the injustice or the brokenness of a world. The way that God would bless in a difficult situation, people get to experience that blessing when Christians live the way that we're supposed to live. And it can be hard to kind of wrap our heads around because some of these things are very steep. The call of God on our lives is very steep. If you've ever read through the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's some of the most difficult teaching that you will ever receive. The things that we're commanded to do or told to do feel like impossible tasks. How could anybody live that way? And it's this picture of the kingdom of God, if it were to permeate humanity, if it were to fully affect our decision-making, our character, our responses, this is the kind of thing it would look like. And Paul takes that teaching, that Sermon on the Mount teaching, and there are multiple times where he shows us what it looks like to be a different kind of people. If you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, a couple of things that Jesus teaches us about being distinct. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And essentially what he's talking about is this, this flavoring or this preservative, this distinction that's different, and he calls on believers to not lose our saltiness. It's a, it's a great picture that he gives. Uh, the next verse, he says, you are the light of the world, talking about the world being in darkness, but when you live the way of Jesus, you actually provide illumination for the world, what it means to look to God. And then in verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You function as an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's a major part of why you're here is to represent the way of Jesus. We see Paul take this on and share it a couple of different times. This is Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul's challenge to the Ephesians is, look, the, the way of the world is not going to go good. We're not going to describe the days as good. The world around us is not going to be good. But there's a distinct call on believers to actually live wisely, 
to live differently, to live in a way that makes the best use of our time here because we're here on purpose. And if you've been with us for any length of time, we've talked about this a lot of times. There's a reason when you give your life to Jesus, you're not just sucked up immediately into heaven. It's because actually you have purpose here. God has you here to bring his kingdom, to bring his distinct way of living, the way of Jesus into this world so that people can see that light and they can follow God. That's the plan. He tells the Philippians this, chapter two, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. This picture is that there is darkness and we have the ability through the spirit to shine brightly and demonstrate something totally different that people can look at us and say, oh, okay, there is a different way to do humanity than what's instinctive. And that becomes critical as time goes on. So this passage that we're in, in Romans chapter 12, is one of those high call passages. Paul is going to list out some things that are distinct and challenging for us to take on. They're not our natural response to the things of this world, but they are the way that a Christian is now being transformed to respond to the things of this world. And it's difficult. And so it's not something that we naturally do, and it is even something that we need to work at, but the call is on us to function this way. So if you have your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 12. We'll be here most of the time, verses 14 through 21. Here are the things that Paul says. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so to get started, let me just ask a kind of a survey question. How many of you in here are an oldest sibling? You have younger siblings. How many of you are an oldest sibling? All right, okay. Here's something that happens in families sometimes, and I know this because it happens in our family. If you want to enact change among the children, uh, a lot of times you will go to the oldest and have a higher expectation of that oldest child that they would react and respond a certain way. And so then there's this trickle-down effect. If the oldest gets it and can implement the things that you're trying to do, then the youngers will fall in line or at least learn what discipline looks like and in fear decide to obey. So uh, there's this kind of high expectation on oldest. And those of you that are oldest, maybe you've, yeah, I see some nodding heads. Yes, there's a difference to being the oldest from being the youngest. There's a comedian named Nate Bargatze, and he talks about having a uh, sister that's 10 years younger than him, and he says that she was basically raised by her best friends. Like the difference in parenting from the oldest to the youngest is a massive difference. Well, God is treating us like the oldest in this situation. 
he's actually challenging us to a high call to respond differently, to be more mature, more faithful, more carrying out of his way. He's calling on all of his people to say, the world's gonna be a mess. My expectation is that you would not stoop to that level, but that you would actually respond with a gracious response in the midst of a broken world. And so God's putting us in this place of saying, I have high expectations of you. Now, I say that, and I want to be careful. Because I know there's this sense of like, well, there's grace, there's freedom, we all make mistakes, we're kind of going through life. And here's, here's what I want to say. That high expectation is not so that you would earn your salvation. God's not saying, do these things and I'll save you. This is how God is teaching us to use the freedom that was described in Romans 6. You've been set free from your bondage to sin, and now you have freedom and you get to choose how to respond to the world. It's not an automatically sinful response. It can be now a spirit-filled response to a broken world, and now he's trying to hone in. What does it look like for you to respond to a broken world with godliness, with faith, and with grace? He tells the Corinthians straight up, you have freedom. How do you use that freedom? Are you going to use that freedom to bless? And that's ultimately where he's going to start. So the first passage in verse 14, Paul writes, and he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Okay, let's take a look at two of these words. The first one is persecute. Okay, the word persecute is different than the word annoy. Paul's not saying bless those who annoy you, bless and do not curse them. Uh, he does deal with that in other places. This is not that. This persecute is something different. The word for persecute is the word that's, that would be used to chase somebody out of town. Okay, Paul himself had been chased out of town. He had been dragged out of town. People took him outside of the city limits and they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. And then he's, I'm not dead yet. And he gets up and keeps going and preaching the gospel. Like there's a, there's a, a, a Paul who knows what persecution looks like. And he's saying, okay, I know what that category is. I know what it means to be run out of town. And I say that because I want us to understand that, that the idea of persecution has to do with Somebody who does not want your voice, your influence, your message, or your presence to affect their life, and they make that known. It's like they're running you out of their life. They're actually uh, challenging you as a point of contact or influence in their life, and that's the idea of persecution. And a lot of times, when we're being persecuted, our instinct is to respond by lashing back, by actually like, you know, it's like when we, get, when we get hit, it's kind of our instinct to just hit back. And Paul wants us to approach this from a very different way. So he says, bless those who persecute you. Now, the biblical word for bless has three layers. Uh, the first layer is to speak well of or to praise or to extol. So I want you to think about this. Paul's telling us, as somebody is chasing you out of town, let's use that literal word for it, as somebody is chasing you out of town, I want you to speak well of them. I want you to actually speak highly of the people who are trying to get rid of you out of their life. That's what it would look like to bless somebody that's persecuting you, is as they are getting you out of their life, you are honoring them with your words counterintuitive, 
It's countercultural. It's not the way that our culture responds. Right now, we're in a world that if somebody blasts you, you blast them back harder, and then it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating, and that's the instinct of the world is to use words to tear down, and Paul's saying, actually, we're going to do this different. Even if somebody is persecuting you, you're going to respond verbally by speaking well of them, praising them, extolling them. That's the first layer of blessing. The second layer of blessing is to act kindly towards. So as somebody is persecuting you, wanting to rid you from their life, your reaction and response as somebody filled by the Spirit is to act kindly towards them, to be a person of generous spirit that loves them and encourages them, whose posture is for them, not against them. That's what it would look like to bless somebody that persecutes you. So as they're doing all this work to get rid of you, you are generous in your posture towards them. Again, counterintuitive, countercultural. It's not the kind of thing that we naturally do. It's the kind of thing that's being trained into us by the renewing of our mind. Then the third layer of blessing is to provide benefits. So let's say a grandma or a great uncle gives you a car. That's a blessing. And we'll use that language often. We'll get this sense where it's like, oh, I got blessed with a free car. And it's the idea of a tangible gift that benefits somebody. That's the third layer of blessing. As somebody is persecuting you, you are to provide for them tangibly, to give something to them, to bless them, even if it's you being run out of town, you're meeting a need being somebody that provides for them. This is extremely difficult to live with. It's not our instinct, and it's not even the way of the world, but it's one of those ways that we as Christians can show that we are distinctly different, that the Spirit is taking over, and our instinct is being quelled. Now, we're not just going to react in the flesh and attack when we've been attacked, but we are actually going to respond in the spirit and we're going to bless when we are persecuted. That is a powerful difference in the way of Jesus from the way of the world. And the next thing that Paul talks about is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Now, there's something kind of fundamental in humanity. When you're born and you grow up, your whole world is seen through one lens. Your own eyes, your own experiences, Uh, what you taste, touch, feel, all the senses, everything that you've experienced. So by design, by nature, we are self-centered individuals. Hey, we're built to survive. We're built to take care of ourselves, and we only know the world through our own experience. Part of coming to faith in Jesus is then learning how to lay down that self and to take on a desire to serve others, to take on a different way of thinking, that the world is not all about me. It doesn't revolve around me. My story is not just how everybody in the world interacts with me. It actually starts to take shape of how can I be a blessing to somebody else? How can I encourage somebody else? And Paul shares this and he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He's actually trying to train that attitude that 
when you're in community, one of the things that a believer can do is we can actually, like the Holy Spirit, we can come alongside somebody that's rejoicing and we can join in their rejoicing and be an encouragement to them in that. Or as somebody is weeping, we can come alongside their weeping and we can be a blessing to strengthen them in a time of mourning. He's trying to train up in us that when we come to faith in Jesus, if we're going to make a difference in this world, one of the things that we do is we make it so that the world's not all about us that we consider others more important than ourselves, that we lay down our own needs and are able to be a blessing to others. Even as I say those things, I feel like I've said those to Andrew multiple times as the oldest in our house of like, hey, it's not all about you. Like, just let your siblings have some space. Let them kind of maneuver in the household, like trying to train that up of how do we, how do, we do this? And this is God coming to us and saying, look, I actually want you as people who have received the inheritance of my blessing." to be able to bless by coming alongside people in their moment of need. Now, he amplifies this by using this next phrase. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. All right, I'm not a a musician. I mean, I I play guitar, uh, but I'm not a musician. Um, If any of you know what it means to play guitar and not be a musician, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, So the idea of melody and harmony are foreign to me. I had to watch a YouTube to understand them. But the idea is that a melody carries the song. That's the the, the primary notes that make up the song. And then a harmony is a different person or instrument trying to complement that main note that is the melody. And it's actually somebody that would listen to the notes that are being sung of the melody and being able to harmonize means you're actually choosing the notes that best complement that melody. What are the ways that I can add to it, that I can... Be a blessing to that melody. That's what it would mean to harmonize from a singing point of view or from an instrumental point of view is playing notes that complement and that build up and that make it fly. And Paul's challenging us. He's saying harmonize, live in harmony with one another. And then he gives some specific instruction of what that's going to look like. He says, don't be haughty. Now, haughty is not really a word that we use very often, but uh, it would essentially... If we were to modernize it, we might say, don't be arrogant or don't be cliquish. Don't pick the people that are most like you, that are the easiest for you to be around. Uh, We're not in this body of Christ to make a homogenous movement of same type of people, same socioeconomic status, same language, same culture. We're not just trying to group up so that we all look and like the same things. That's actually not the way of the kingdom of God. We've gotten the great opportunity of being brought into a story in Nepal. So uh, probably about 10 years ago, Mark and Marcy Avery came to Anthem, and uh, they had led a house church for a number of years, and they had a ministry in Nepal that they had started called Touch Nepal. It was all about uh, doing church planting, training up leaders, working with orphans, but it was Nepal-focused, and so they brought us in. So now since then, I think I've been to Nepal, I don't know, half a dozen times, gotten to be in life and ministry with some of these great people. But there's something about India and Nepal that help us understand this idea of haughtiness, and it's the the caste system. You might be familiar with the caste system. Essentially, the caste system is there's an order to society. Uh, You're born into a certain level of caste, and it's usually socioeconomic-based or familially, familially based. It's based on your status and you are born into that status and you're raised with that status and you live with that status and you die with that status. There's not change that happens in the caste system. 
In fact, when we go to Nepal, there's a, an element of you don't help people that are poor because they deserve that place. That's, they're there from their karma. They're supposed to be there. You don't help them get out of their caste. That's where they should be. So there's no generosity. You don't help the poor like that. It's just the way that they're supposed to be. Well, when they come to faith in Jesus, it obliterates the caste system. And so you, you could have people at the top level of Nepali culture that come to faith in Jesus that are all of a sudden associating with the untouchables of society, and it can be the most beautiful picture of the gospel, but it also takes an extreme undoing of a worldview to actually land at this place of the gospel applying and being able to be in a church together where before you wouldn't even look at somebody. You wouldn't even, like, you wouldn't even acknowledge their existence, and now they are a brother or sister in Christ of equal standing to you in the kingdom of God. And as dramatic as it is in India and Nepal, it happens here as well. And Paul's challenge is, don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Look for opportunities to be a blessing, and that's where that harmony picture comes in. Paul's asking us as believers to be the harmonizers in a situation, to look for somebody else's melody and to find out how I can come alongside and I can lift their melody. How I can come alongside them and I can be a blessing to them as they're going through their life. He's trying to change our way of thinking to say you have the Holy Spirit whose whole ministry is to come alongside and lift up. You now do that very thing. Come alongside even the lowly in the church community and be a part of lifting them up, be a part of that song that's going to be an encouragement and a blessing to them. That's the idea of live in harmony with one another. Paul closes out this kind of first section in verse 16 with a challenge that none of this is going to work without humility. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Now, this is a phrase that it kind of makes its way through the Old Testament. Uh, Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And the idea of being wise in your own eyes is that you carry the wisdom that wins. So if somebody else could kind of speak into your life and it just isn't good enough, the way that you think, the worldview that you possess, the thoughts that you have, uh, those are the way of doing things and you don't allow other people to speak in or mold or shape or build up. And so it's this idea of being wise in our own eyes. It's living with a sense that my way is the right way. It's the best way. And it's my way. And I'm going to carry it. Paul's challenging us with this. If we're going to harmonize with other people, if we're going to come alongside them, we're not going to be haughty, we're going to associate with the lowly, one of the fundamental shifts that needs to happen in our lives is that we actually need to adopt a posture of humility. And it's one of the great themes that goes throughout the Bible. Uh, there's an author that writes for the website Desiring God. His name's Marshall Siegel. And he uh, was talking about this passage, uh, Romans 12, 16. And he talks about three important shifts to our, in our thinking if we're going to adopt a humble self-view. Three things that we need to do or need to understand if we're going to actually be humble people. The first thing he says is that I need the grace that others have. So we need to start to come to the internal conclusion 
that I need the grace that the people around me have to pour into me, to shape me, to help me, to encourage me. I'm built to be a part of a body. See, it's one thing to think about the body of Christ and think about my gifting and how can I be a blessing and everybody needs what I have and we kind of have this like mentality of how can I help, but there's another aspect of that that says, actually, I, I also need you. I need to receive from what you have. I don't have all the gifts. I don't have Jesus completely filling my mind and my heart. I need the body of Christ to help and encourage. I need the grace that others have. I'm a part of the body of Christ. The second thing that helps us adopt a humble self-view is to be able to say, all I have, I have received. All I have, I have received. See, our instinct is to say, well, I worked hard for this. I went to school. Uh, I have all of these things that I've done to get to where I am. And while those statements are true, there's a bigger understanding of God's sovereign hand that speaks to who you are. How did you get the genetics that you have, the family line that you have, the education that you have, the 15 generations deep of experiences that you have that have shaped who you are today? God's hand has been at work in every phase of your life to get you to where you are today. So what you have, you contributed to, but God has provided you with what you have today. There's a humility to being able to say what I have what I've been given, what what God has provided to me, and I've walked with him in that, and I've worked hard, and I've come alongside. You could say all of those things, but it is God's grace. God provided. Being able to say that takes our hands from from closing in and saying, it's mine, it's all mine, I did it, it's mine, and it opens us up and say, it's what God gave me, and I want to steward it. I want to use it for his glory, for his name. And the third thing A shift in our thinking to adopt a humble self-view is to be able to say, when I am weak, then I am strong. This has to do with the power of God. It goes to when Paul was talking about his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times for that to be taken away, and Jesus responded and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And the, the picture that Jesus was saying to Paul is that when you are at your weakest, actually, the ministry that flows out of that, that's when it puts me on display. It's not just your capability, it's not just what you can do, but I'm seen when you're weak. And so Paul then goes to say, well, if that's the case, I'm gonna boast of my weakness because I want Jesus on display. I'm not here for me. I'm not here to put my strengths on display. I want Jesus to be on display. So Paul says, I'll, I'll boast in my weakness. I'll look for the areas that I'm most weak and watch God work deeply in those places. And that picture allows us to adopt this humble self-view that says, I will never be wise in my own eyes. And that, that humility opens up the door for all kinds of ministry, for us to be able to come alongside people and minister to them in their time of need. Now, the second kind of section of this uh, passage that we're in starts in verse 17, and it has to do with this idea of vengeance. It's a It's an interesting subject matter to talk about vengeance. It deals with injustice. Culturally, it's one of those things that uh, sort of, we like vengeance. Honestly, we're entertained by the Avengers, like we're entertained by vengeance. 
one of the great cinematic masterpieces is Man on Fire with Denzel Washington. I mean, there's just this idea of like vengeance and we kind of root for the person that is enacting vengeance on the world. And so there's a sense in us of like, okay, that's right and good when vengeance is carried out because it means that injustice is being dealt with in a timely manner. But God has a, a different set of instructions for us as believers. And it's countercultural. For us as Americans, there's some ideas of like righteousness and vengeance that's sort of baked into who we are. And this is God actually training some of that, that out of us and helping, you know, again, wring that towel, these things that are cultural but not the way of Jesus. Let's actually walk in a different way. And he teaches us how to live without the vengeance of the things that, that God wants to hold in our place. And so these are the things that he says. First, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay. So instinct, when evil is done to us, uh, instinct is to strike back, to lash out. When Jesus taught about turning the other cheek after you've been hit, like that's the idea is if somebody hits you, there's a, there's a defense mechanism, there's a response that's required. And, and so our world gets into this kind of combative mode because if we are attacked, then we respond with an attack. And Paul's challenge here is to repay no one evil for evil, but something else is going to start happening in you if you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, I want you to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So when evil is done to you, the question for a follower of Jesus is not how do I strike back, but how do I respond with honor? How do I do the thing in the moment that lets the light of Jesus shine before men that they might see his good works and praise our Father who's in heaven? How do I respond differently than the world would respond? So Paul challenges, repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay, some of like the, the low-hanging fruit of this would be just like each political season. So every four years when it sort of ramps up and everybody just kind of starts chipping at each other and the world finds their camps and starts attacking, there's this sense of our talk can go to a very evil place. As evil is said about something that we hold dearly, we say evil about something that they hold dearly, and it just sort of piles on and very little gets done. And more importantly, very little gospel of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, is communicated to a world that does not know Jesus. And so Paul challenges us to think differently. When there's evil in the world, what does it look like for you to be honorable even when other people are not. And I know that a lot of you are in situations where, and it goes way beyond politics. Again, that was the low-hanging fruit. But there are many situations where people will act evil or do dishonorable things. And the call of the believer in this moment, and I'll say this phrase very carefully, but it's to be the bigger person. And that's not to say from an arrogant point of view. That's a, it's a cliche that helps us understand something. Being a bigger person is not just about, you know, arrogantly and pridefully taking on a self-righteous attitude. That's not being the bigger person. Being the bigger person, as that colloquialism goes, is when there's a conflict, 
you're the person that lays down the thing that you're holding on to in order to make peace. That's what it would mean to be the bigger person. You're the first to grace. You're the first to forgiveness. You're the first to gentleness. You're the first to run at those places. And so that picture, well, that's played out in this next phrase. Paul says this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, Paul gives us two disclaimers because he knows there's a lot of context in every situation. And maybe in you, when you are challenged to live peaceably, you're just like, but, but, but. And the Romans absolutely would have done that because there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of evil in Rome and there were a lot of things happening to and against Christians. And so Paul knows the context that he's writing into. And so he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. So we talked about politics. Let's go to a different category where conflict and difficulty can happen. And sometimes as Christians, we don't live the best way. And that would be in family dynamics when families are fracturing. You see this all the time. There's a, a family fracture that takes place and people will start to act in very unchristian ways in the middle of a fracturing family. And it can devolve very quickly into backbiting and gossip and camps and slander. All kinds of things happen within a family. And oftentimes, on the broader level, that family would be a Christian family. And you can just see a de-evolution of of the values of Jesus, the way of Jesus being carried out in that family dynamic. So Paul's telling you. He's challenging you saying, if possible, so far as it depends on you. You can't control somebody else's reaction. You can't make them be honorable. You can't make them be gentle. You can't make them be patient. You can't make them be self-controlled. You ever try that? That does not work. You can't make anybody do anything. But you can control you. You used to not be able to before you were a slave to sin. You had no control over how you reacted. It was a sinful response no matter what. But now you've been set free from sin. You've been given the Holy Spirit and you have freedom. How will you use that freedom to be a blessing in a fractured family situation? As far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all. And our tendency might be to say when conflict arises, we just kind of Shaka and bounce. Like that's our living peaceably with all. It's just leaving a situation. And that's not the call of God on our lives. It is actually to bring the fruit of the Spirit into a broken situation. As far as it depends on you to live peaceably with all is to bring love into a fractured situation. To bring peace into a fractured situation and joy into a fractured situation and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. And so much of our instinct, so much of our flesh is to want for other people to be responsible for these things. It's like, well, they, but they did. But, we just, everything in us is to want somebody else to act a different way. And this is the call of God to look at you and to say, 
I'm talking to you now. I'm talking to you. How are you going to respond? You're not going to let their evil bring you to a place of then acting in an evil way. Regardless of how they're acting, you are going to respond in a godly way. That's what that means. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now the next thing, and this is perhaps one of the more challenging things to read. Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This idea of vengeance is one of those things where we might look at something like this and there's injustice that's done to us. Now, I want to separate out two things right now. There's injustice that's done to us, and then there's injustice in the world. We might fight injustice in the world, like ending human trafficking or abortion or these different things that are done in the world. We might fight to end injustice in the world. That's not the injustice that we're talking about here. This is when somebody has done injustice or evil to you. Okay, that's, that's the context of this statement. Paul says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, you might read this, and your instinct even still might be like, okay, well, I'm not going to take vengeance, but get him, God. (laughs) And we want God to rain down wrath on people. And that would feel good because the injustice requires justice to make it right, like punishment to make it right, the wrath of God to make it right. And so even if we're not ourselves doing it, there's this want in us that God's wrath would be poured out on somebody. But here's one of the great challenges of the Bible. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's the question. How does God repay vengeance? How does God pour out his wrath? The answer to that is God pours out his wrath in this picture of punishment, hell, separation. But anybody, anybody that puts their faith in Jesus, his wrath has been poured out on Jesus and no longer on that person. And so when we give vengeance to the Lord and he forgives somebody that has done injustice to us, we are not going to see the vengeance on that person that we wanted to see because all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross and not on that person. So when we give vengeance to the Lord, we are trusting him to do whatever he sees fit in his way higher view of spiritual things than we could ever fully understand. And we have released it. We've released it. It's not ours anymore. What God does with that person that has done injustice to you is no longer yours to carry. You've handed it to the Lord and he will determine what is right. That person comes to faith in Jesus, what is right is for that wrath to be poured out on Jesus and not on that person. And in us, in our flesh, we could respond in a broken way and that's why Paul is calling us to give it to the Lord completely. 
says he will repay. Now what happens when we actually give vengeance to the Lord and then follow Paul's instructions, something else happens. He says to the contrary. So not only are you giving the vengeance to the Lord, so this thing that you want to be enacted on somebody else, you're giving it to the Lord, but also Paul says to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, heap burning coals on his head. For a lot of us, we're like, okay, we're getting somewhere now. This is the good stuff. That's what I want them to experience. Hot coals on their head. Um, This is a quote from an Old Testament passage, and then it's brought into Romans 12. And commentators will look at this phrase, heap burning coals on his head, and go like this. They don't know exactly what the Old Testament author or what Paul are trying to say when by feeding and giving them something to drink, we heap burning coals on, on their head. It's one of those strange moments where it's like, okay, we don't have an exact, it's a phrase, we don't know exactly what they were getting at when they said this. But generally speaking, they come to this conclusion. That in the world, there's an economy, evil for evil, right? If somebody punches me, we'll just use this as an example, and I punch them back, we're even. We're done. And there's something to that economy that sort of satisfies the human soul or the flesh that what was done evil to me has now been returned and we're good, we're even. Again, you could look at a thousand movies and just see that, all right? We're even, we're even, done. We walk away. And what happens is when somebody does evil to us and we respond with blessing, feeding the person that's hungry, and giving them something to drink. What happens is that we create a dissonance in the human condition. An unnatural response to the evil that's being done. And in so doing, we actually create space for the gospel. That that burning coals on their head is a picture of actually a, this isn't the way that the world is supposed to be. There's something different about how this person responded than the way the world is naturally responds. And we create a different environment, a broken situation, and oftentimes a burning dissatisfaction in the person that has done the evil. That's the picture that commentators will say of putting burning coals on their head is this picture of we've disrupted the norm and we have unsettled that person because there was an expected response that we did not bring. They attacked us, there was injustice, and we made them a lasagna. Like, that's the picture of feeding somebody that attacks us. It's not the natural response. It is a gospel response. It's an unnatural response to be a blessing when we've been provoked or attacked. And this is what Paul is calling us into. Now, he says this to wrap up the section. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that simple phrase is incredibly complex because the reality is evil is overwhelming and it will get increasingly overwhelming in Rome. So in the 10 to 15 to 30 to 100 to 150 to 250 years following this letter, Christians will be persecuted virtually nonstop by the Roman government, killed, burned, fed to animals, imprisoned, tortured, unbelievable amounts of evil. And this is Paul's reestablishment of a gospel hope. You're here for a reason. Don't be overcome by evil. 
You have an opportunity right now to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome that evil with good. To bring the kingdom of God into an increasingly evil world is the gift that we have, and we're to carry that. Now, let me say this. It's tiring. Uh, We can be prone to self-righteousness. If we're always the ones bringing righteousness and good and other people are always doing evil, we can build self-righteous attitudes. We can build uh, bitterness and resentment. We can start to carry a lot of the the sort of plaque or buildup of attitudes. If we're not walking in humility, stuff can really get sinful in a weird way. There's a need for us to do this, but there's also a need for us to walk in that healing presence of the gospel, that he's here to minister to us and carry us and do this work. From Psalm 23, it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The picture of us doing good in this world is not that we just martyr ourselves and just kind of serve and it's like, okay, just keep taking and keep taking and keep taking and we just grow increasingly bitter that people just keep walking all over us and walking all over us. Paul tells the Corinthians that apostles are the scum of the earth. They're the doormats to the kingdom of heaven that apostles just get walked over as people are going into eternity. And he says, that's beautiful. But it's not because he has this endless source to give from in himself. It's this picture that he anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. That's the source of our ability to be a blessing. He anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. So if you right now are tired, tired of trying to walk in righteousness while people around you are doing evil, tired of being in an environment where standing for the way of Jesus and nobody seems to be linking arms with you, two things. First of all, if stuff starts to build up in you that is resentment, and bitterness, frustration, anger. Today's a great day to confess those things and say that's not the way of Jesus. Just to to let those things be laid down and say, I I want the way of Jesus, but that buildup, it's starting to pile up on me. I've been giving out of all that I have to give and not letting the Spirit of God fill me to give. I just, I need to lay these attitudes down. These are not the way of Jesus. It's a great day to confess and repent and just say, Lord, help me walk through this with your, with your wholeness on me, your anointing on me. And that would lead to the second thing. He anoints our head with oil. The picture of anointing in the uh, Old Testament and even on into the New Testament is this picture of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a... It's a visual. And when uh, a a priest was anointed with oil and it would run down over their beard, it was this picture of the the Holy Spirit filling them for the duty, the task of serving as a priest. As elders, when we pray for the sick and we anoint uh, somebody's head with oil, it's it's not like the oil is a healing thing. It's not lavender that we're pouring over somebody. It's, It's the oil representing the Holy Spirit. And we're praying that the Spirit of God would heal with power. When the psalmist writes, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, we're talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit to be the blessing that we're supposed to be. 
And so today, you might need that filling freshly. Fractured family, difficult work environment, friends that just always are in opposition to the life that you're trying to live. And you just need that anointing. Erica, would you mind coming up? Uh, Actually, the whole worship team, if you guys would mind coming up. So for today, I feel compelled to minister to those of you that feel like you need that anointing for the work ahead. Fractured family, the work environment, friend groups. Maybe I'm not naming the situation, but just that sense of you anoint my head with oil cup overflows I would love for you to leave here not I would love for you to leave here with your cup overflowing spirit of God filling you to minister and to be a blessing in those spaces so I'll just ask as they play through the first song if you would like to be prayed for for your head to be anointed with oil the Holy Spirit to wash over you Just have you come and stand in this space right here. And just one by one, we'll pray over you, bless you, and encourage you, strengthen you in the spirit. I think we even have some oil in the kitchen. I'm happy to anoint anybody that wants to be anointed. And we just want, I want you to leave here equipped with the spirit of God to go and and be that blessing in those environments. So why don't we stand? We've got communion and offering. Uh, Maybe the prayer team could help me pray over people today. Um, and we'll sing together. But you can just start making your way up here, and over the next few minutes, we'll just start praying for you as needed.